Continuing our sermon series through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, we read this morning from chapter 3, beginning at verse 27. Let us ask the Lord, who breathed out this word by his Holy Spirit and preserved it for us in Holy Scripture, now to breathe upon us afresh and to open our minds with spiritual understanding and insight and open our hearts that we might receive his word in true faith. Let us pray. Our gracious, glorious God, we give you thanks and praise that in your great love for us and your rich mercy, you sent your Son into the world to be the propitiation for our sins, to make a new and living way by his blood and your holy presence, and to secure for us that great salvation of eternal life in your everlasting kingdom. We give you thanks, O Lord that you are the just justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. And in his name, we pray that your Holy Spirit will grant us grace to understand your word, to apply it to our lives, and to live it for your glory. Through Christ our Savior. Amen. Let us hear the word of God, Romans three twenty-seven into chapter 4. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since... God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then, shall we say, was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the steps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. 
The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And to his name be all praise, honor, and glory. Amen. After three sermons on the immediately preceding passage, 3, 21 to 26, which emphasize the gospel of justification by grace as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ. Now we come to this passage this morning in which Paul drills down deeper. He is continuing to emphasize this theme, this gospel of justification, a right relationship with God apart from works of the law, by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ. Now, this is a difficult passage, and one of the reasons that it is difficult for us is that this passage is written in such a way, it's written on purpose by Paul, in such a way that we are hearing Paul or watching Paul, so to speak, as he engages in debate with the Jewish leaders of the first century who have rejected the gospel of justification by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So we hear him ask rhetorical questions, and then he answers them. He is making his point, and you have, to, you have to imagine being there and listening to him as he is engaged in the debate, because in fact, this is the way in which Paul would debate with the leaders of the synagogues when he would go on his missionary journeys. He's sort of giving us an example, and it's a, it's a way of training the first century Christians in Rome. It's a, it's a way of continuing to reach out to evangelize his Jewish brothers. Remember that Paul is a Jew, and he has great concern for his Jewish brothers who have rejected the gospel. And so we are uh, listening to, overhearing this rhetorical argument or debate on Paul's part. And his main point, here's the point, here's the big idea. The big idea of this passage is that the gospel of justification, a right relationship with God, by God's grace, given as God's gift, received through faith in Jesus Christ, this is not a new idea. This is not a new doctrine. This is not contrary to the Old Testament scriptures. Paul's point here, the big idea is that the gospel of justification by grace through faith in Jesus Christ is deeply, deeply rooted in the Old Testament scriptures. This is the point that Paul is driving home over and over and over again in this passage and in the passage to come. Now, what does that tell us? Well, first of all, it tells us that the Old Testament and the New Testament are not opposed to one another. They are not in conflict with one another. Now, sometimes we hear it said, for example, the Old Testament is about law. 
The New Testament is about grace. As though, as though the Old Testament and the New Testament are like oil and water. It's a very erroneous view of the scriptures. It's a very, a very erroneous way of understanding God's plan of salvation. It is true that there are changes that come with the new covenant in Christ, with the coming of Christ, his life, death, resurrection, ascension into heaven. There are changes in the way in which God's covenant people are identified as his people and the way in which they worship him. For example, and, and here's the image I want you to think about. Um, the relationship between the Old Testament to the New Testament. The New Testament is the, f- is the flower in full bloom of the seed planted in the Old Testament. Got that? The New Testament is the, f- is the flower in full bloom of the seed planted in the Old Testament. Or we might say the New Testament is like uh, the sun shining at midday on a clear day after sunrise through a foggy mist. It's the same sun. Justification by grace through faith was always God's way of redeeming his people. That's Paul's point. I'm repeating myself because this is a difficult passage and I want I don't want you to get lost in the details, but keep that big idea in mind. And the way in which Paul does this is he appeals to two great historical figures of the Old Testament. He appeals To Abraham, our father Abraham, the great patriarch, the progenitor of Israel. And then later, he appeals to David, the beloved king of Israel, from whom the Messiah, Jesus Christ, was descended. And he is doing this in order... To establish the fact, and again, remember, in the first century context, he is addressing the Jewish establishment which has rejected Jesus. They cannot imagine that the Messiah of Israel would be crucified by the Gentiles. Furthermore, they can't imagine that the, that, that the Gentiles would be included in the covenant community. But there are, there, are, there are changes. I'll go back through that now. For example, um, we don't offer sacrifices anymore. Why? Because Jesus offered himself up as a sacrifice to end all sacrifices. We don't have one physical temple in one geographical location. Why? Because we, the church, the new covenant people of God in Jesus Christ, we are the living stones of his living, breathing temple in whom God dwells by his spirit all over the world in every nation. We do not have a great high priest. We do not have a, a high priest. To offer sacrifices and prayers for us. Why? Because Jesus is our great high priest who intercedes for us at the right hand of God the Father 
Almighty. We do not practice circumcision as the sacramental sign of our identity as God's covenant people. Why? Because Jesus himself was, as it were, circumcised, cut. His body was cut for us on the cross. And after his resurrection, he instituted the sacrament of baptism, the sign of union with Christ in his death and resurrection by faith to be the sign of our covenantal identity. We know we no longer, we do not observe the Passover meal. Why? Because Jesus is the true Passover lamb. And his blood is the blood that covers our sin so that death passes over. And his, he himself is the bread of life who feeds our souls. So you, you see that there are changes from the old covenant into the new covenant. But the point of all that is that the Christian faith... And the practice of the Christian life is deeply, deeply, deeply rooted in the Old Testament. The Old Testament and the New Testament are not opposed to one another. They're not in conflict with one another. And this is Paul's point. And, and so he, he establishes this by appealing both to Abraham and David. But he, he begins there at verse 27. He says, He asked this rhetorical question, then what becomes of our boasting? Now, first century context, he's referring to the boasting of the Jews. And he uses the first person plural. He's identifying with them. Paul, a Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin. He's identifying with his Jewish brothers and he's saying, look, what what becomes of our our boasting? That is to say, our confidence, our self-assured confidence in our ancestral identity as descendants of Abraham and our observance of the law. What becomes of that? He says nothing. It is excluded. In other words, he's telling his Jewish brothers, we have nothing to boast about concerning ourselves. Verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, you can make a little note. You go to Philippians 3. You can read Paul's own autobiographical statement. Philippians chapter 3. And I've already made reference to that in a previous sermon. In which Paul says, if anyone has reason for confidence in the flesh, and that is confidence in his ancestral identity, confidence in his observance of the law, if anyone has reasons for confidence or if anyone has reason to boast, it is I, a Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, as to the law blameless. And you know, He goes on in that passage to say, I count it all as rubbish. It's worthless. It's nothing compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, and having a righteousness not of my own, but a righteousness of God through faith 
in Jesus Christ. And you know, when Paul says that he, he counts all, of his, all the things that he could boast about as rubbish, it, it, it reminds me, perhaps Paul had it in mind, of that verse from Isaiah. All our righteousness is as filthy rags. So when Paul says that in Philippians chapter 3, really all he's doing is, it's, it's based on what Isaiah 700 years before Christ had already said. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ is just the full flower of the seed planted in the Old Testament. And so Paul is saying that this gospel of Jesus Christ, yes, indeed, the gospel of justification by grace through faith, apart from works of the law, it undermines and it undercuts all the ancestral and religious pride of the first century Jewish establishment which had rejected the gospel. But again, Paul was doing this with great grief in it. He was saying this to his Jewish brothers with great grief in his heart, concern for them and wanting them to come and to embrace the gospel. Now, let's leap into the 21st century. Let's leap into the church of Jesus Christ and make an application for ourselves today. What becomes of our boasting? You see, in, in, in American culture today, which is so terribly polarized and divided, and you know all about that, Those of us who profess faith in Christ and who profess to believe that the Bible is the word of God and seek to live according to it, we're sometimes perceived as being self-righteous, arrogant, holier than thou, etc., prideful in our religion. And, you know, I'm afraid that sometimes maybe that's more true than we would like to admit. I mean, after all, we are upstanding people. We're, a, we're, we're for all the good things. We're against all the bad things. We vote the right way. And the fact of the matter is, if more people in the world were more like us, then America and the whole world would be a much better place in which to live. Right? Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh-huh. Gotcha. Because that puts us right where the Pharisees of the first century were. Because who are we? We're sinners who are saved by God's grace as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ whom God put forward as a propitiation, a sin-covering, wrath-absorbing sacrifice for my sins. I got nothing to boast about in terms of my relationship with God. 
So let's not let it ever come across like, I'm proud to be a Christian. It's nonsense. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. The gospel of justification by grace through faith in Jesus Christ undercuts, undermines, and should destroy all religious pride in us, just as it did the Jewish establishment of the first century. Now, Paul drills deeper. He, now he's going to broaden his point. Remember, this is an, this is a, a, an argument, that is to say, a debate. Uh, he says, is God the... And, and, and the point here in the first century was that God is justifying the Gentiles by grace, through faith, apart from works of the law. They don't need to be circumcised in order to be brought into God's covenant community. And, and so Paul says at verse 29, is God the God of Jews only? That's a rhetorical question. Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Now Paul there is referring to the great Shema of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Right? And so he's, he's using Old Testament scripture, Old Testament theology with his Jewish brothers to make his point. Look, since there's only one God, the eternal creator of heaven and earth, who is the creator of all humanity, to whom all humanity is accountable, he must be the God of the Gentiles. Also, and since God is just and God shows no partiality, He is going to justify both Jew and Gentile in the same way. That's Paul's point there at verse 30. Since God is one, He will justify the circumcised by faith, the Jewish people by faith, and the uncircumcised through faith. And then he goes on and now refers to Abraham our forefather according to the flesh. What will we say to Abraham? If Abraham was justified by his works, he has something to boast about. But in fact, that's not the case at all. What does the scripture say? Chapter 4, verse 3. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, Paul is quoting Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Genesis 15, an extremely important verse, the foundational verse for the doctrine of justification by faith. Do you remember the story of Abraham? He was a very old man. He was married to a very old woman, Sarah, who all of her life had been barren. But God had promised Abraham to make of him a great nation, to bless him, and through him to bring God's blessing to all the families of the earth. And after God had made that promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, some time had elapsed. Abraham and Sarah were still childless. Abraham questioned the Lord, how can this be? 
How can I be the father of a great nation when I have no child? The Lord took him out from his tent, told him to look up at the clear night sky, and said, Abraham, number the scars if you can. So shall your offspring be. Impossible. Impossible promise. Given to an old man and his old barren wife. So shall your offspring breathe. Absolutely impossible. Humanly, naturally impossible. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. It was on the basis of Abraham's believing the promise of God. The impossible promise of God. That he was Justified that he received this right relationship with God. Then further in chapter 4 at verse 6, Paul then refers to David. David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Psalm 32. Blessed. That means Secure, assured, happy in relationship with God. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Paul now is pointing to David and he's saying, look brothers, look at David. He wasn't exactly a law keeper. In fact, he was a lawbreaker. if you know the story of David. An adulterer? A murderer? On what did he have his righteousness? Righteousness apart from works. David says, blessed, happy, assured, secure are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Whose sins are covered. Covered by blood of atonement. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Sin's not credited, charged to his account. How can that be? Well, here's the seed of the gospel in the Old Testament. Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5, 17 and following, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting, not counting, not charging, not crediting their trespasses against them. Why? Because of the sacrifice of Christ. So again, Paul is driving home his point. The gospel of justification, righteousness apart from works of the law, is there in the Old Testament scriptures. And he then makes the point further in verse 10 and following that Abraham was not justified because he was circumcised, because he obeyed God's law. No, 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 says Paul. Abraham was circumcised after after he had been declared righteous with God. Verse 10, how then was it counted? How was Abraham's righteousness counted to him? Was it, was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after. 
It was before he was circumcised. In other words, the basis of Abraham's relationship with God was not his following the religious works of the law. And what's the point, says Paul? He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith, verse 11, when he was still uncircumcised. And Paul is saying that's gonna, that tells us something. That tells us something. The purpose of all this, the fact that he was justified while he was still uncircumcised, shows us that God's blessing of righteousness God, uh, by faith, God's blessing of justification by faith, God's blessing of righteousness apart from works of the law, was going to be extended to all the uncircumcised people of the world who have Abraham's faith. Faith in the impossible promise of God. So that Abraham is the father, not only of his lineal descendants, the circumcised, the Jews, but of those uncircumcised who have his faith. Now, what's the content of that faith? We're gonna, this becomes more clear in the, chapter, in, the, in the passage which follows for next week. But think about this. The impossible promise of God. Number of the stars, if you can, so shall your offspring be, God said to a man who was almost a hundred years old, his wife almost that old, and for all of her life had been barren. Impossible. But in order to fulfill his promise, God's going to do only what only God could do. Right? In order for this promise to be fulfilled, God's got to do what only God can do. Now this promise to Abraham, that he would bear, he and Sarah would bear a son by a miraculous birth, there's a seed in the Old Testament and it comes to full flower in the New Testament when the true son of the covenant comes by way of a miraculous birth. Right? Right? Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary. And furthermore, think about this. For new life, for new life to come from an old barren womb... That was the promise, new life from an old barren womb to secure God's covenant blessing. That's just a foreshadowing. New life from an old barren womb is just a foreshadowing of new life coming forth from a cold stone tomb. Got it? The impossible promise of God to Abraham by which God would do what only God can do to fulfill, to fulfill his promise and secure his covenant 
for the blessing of people of all nations of the earth comes to the fullness of life in Jesus Christ. Descendant of Abraham, descendant of David, by whose death and resurrection and ascension to the Father's right hand, the blessing of covenant righteousness extends to people of all nations, including you and me today. And thus, God's promise is fulfilled. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. To God be the glory. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your goodness and mercy and love, the glorious gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that your word will inflame our hearts with love for you. And by the power of your spirit within us, uh, move us and compel us to walk more fully in accordance with your grace and truth and righteousness in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us stand to affirm our faith as we read responsively from the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer number one. Christian, what is your only comfort in life and in death? My only comfort is that I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. At the cost of His own precious blood, He has fully paid for all my sins and has set me free from the dominion of the devil. He also watches over me so well that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. Indeed, all things must work together to fit His purpose for my salvation. Therefore, because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly ready and willing from now on to live for Him. Amen.